From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Well, when it comes to food, did you know that 58% of all food produced here in Canada is actually wasted or lost? Well, one in seven households in British Columbia are food insecure, which is a part of the reason that Vancouver Food Runners is so important to our community. Joined by Michelle Reining, Executive Director of said Vancouver Food Runners, joining me here. Good afternoon. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and I want to get right into this because the need for food in our community is obviously continuing to grow, and you guys say that you've scaled up your services by up to 40%. Do tell. Yeah, it's been a busy year for Vancouver Food Runners. So we use um, app technology and a team of volunteer drivers to help us redirect food from about 165 food businesses to 130 nonprofits. So this year we've seen our uh, services scaling um, over, you know, 45% growth this year in terms of the amount of food we've been redirecting for businesses to the nonprofit partners that we're supporting. One of the things that I always say is the backbone of any program like you is your volunteers. This is a great time of the year because obviously with the food need going up and you guys are doing big business up 40%, volunteers are probably still a need. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. And it's so easy to volunteer with Vancouver Food Runners. All you need to do is download our free app on the App Store or Google Play. And then once you're registered, you can instantly see all the food rescues available near you. And food rescues are fantastic to do with family and friends. And they only take about one hour to do from start to finish. You know, I love that you use the term food insecurity because I think that takes a little bit of the stigma away from some families that really didn't ever think they'd see themselves in this position because the the face of hunger, I've been saying this for, for years now at this point, is it's really changed. And a lot of the middle class who thought that they were far and clear are all of a sudden finding themselves pinching pennies and looking for assistance. Has the face changed in your estimation as well? Yeah, we work with about 130 nonprofits, as I've mentioned. And when we're speaking to our partners, we're hearing that more clients are coming to services um, hungry. So they're having to expand their programming to address this need. Um, wait lists are growing for food programming. And, and we're also hearing that nonprofits are actually struggling to purchase food for their programming. So this is where VFR's donations really play a huge role in supporting the nonprofit sector and all the clients um, that are experiencing food insecurity and hunger in our city right now. So let's say I'm somebody who's really struggling and I need your support. How would I start that process and how could it actually happen? Yeah, so ideally you would connect with one of our 130 nonprofit partners. So we're ranging, you know, we work with YWCA and Covenant House, Atira, um, even down to community fridges. Um, an important part of our program is also that we want to work with a lot of different partners that are spread out across the city. So this is so folks can access food within their neighborhood and not have to travel too far. Um, in terms of you know learning more about where to access food, um, the city of Vancouver actually has a great food access map, and then you can instantly see sort of the food programs that are available near you. I think one of the things I was surprised with is most food pickups are less than 15 minutes away from one of these charitable partners, because I always think that I've got to do the trek in, maybe I got to take transit, grab the bus, and then I got to haul the stuff back. But it's actually a lot more simpler than that. Exactly. So what we want to do is when we have a donation from a business partner, we want to place it with a nonprofit that's nearby. So less than 10 minutes in the car. 
Um, this is obviously great in terms of, you know, keeping cars off the road and ensuring that our environmental footprint as an organization is low. And also businesses like to know that they're donating to, to community partners in their neighborhood. That's, that's a good sense of, of feeling that they're giving to, to neighbors in their area. And you guys have only been doing this for a couple of years, right? Is, was it 2019 that you guys got started? Exactly. Yeah, we did our first rescue in March 2020. Um, that first year, we thought we were going to rescue 14,000 pounds of food, and we ended up rescuing 235,000 pounds of food. So there's a huge demand for you know our program in Metro Vancouver. Um, we're seeing the interest among volunteers, and it's exciting to see businesses getting involved. You know, we make food recovery free, accessible, and flexible for all the businesses that want to, to be a part of this type of work. And I love that Vancouver Food Runners also educates about the process. Like I said before this conversation, I didn't know, I didn't realize that nearly 60% of all the food in this country is actually wasted or lost. That's a really big deal. It is a really big deal. It's a huge amount of food. We have a broken food system. So the exciting part is when businesses become involved in our program, we actually start start to track their impact and poundage. And then we give these reports back to the businesses. And then they're actually able to take a look and say, hmm, maybe we need to address this within our operations and actually change them to reduce their food waste. I would imagine you're probably saving some businesses some money as well. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Michelle, thank you for this. I think it's a great time of year to have this conversation. I think what you guys have done in five years is is really impressive, especially through the pandemic as well. And just keep doing the good thing. And we promise we'll bring you on and continue to shine light on your uh, on your efforts. Amazing. Thank you so much. Very appreciated. One thirty-five in Vancouver. Hope you're doing well. Hope you've uh, kind of wrung out the clothes after what was a very, very wet night. I live in Pitt River, uh, Pitt Meadows. My FM might as well be Pitt River. Ninety millimeters of rain overnight. <laughs> it was ready to take my dog out for a walk. We got to the front door. He just looked at me like, "Do we have to?" I'm like, "Come on, man. You know the routine." But uh, yeah, we both came out and we were soggy as can be by the time we got back. So it's nice to see that it's not raining as heavy as it was yesterday. Well, a story that I wanted to make sure that we got some light on today has to do with the decrim training for BC police officers, which is not necessarily mandatory, despite the fact that nearly 9 out of 10 officers do take that training. But the dangers of mixing police and drug. The Georgia Strait came out with a wonderful story the other day, really breaking this down. And I thought we should get into it a little more. So to talk about this... We go to Tyson Singh Kelsall. He's a PhD student at SFU, health sciences, and also an outreach social worker. Uh, Tyson, good afternoon. Hey, Rob. Thanks so much for having me on today. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for making the time for me. And let's get right into this because uh, I've always thought that this was going to be a real tough thing to implement, getting the police involved with the decriminalization. What are the early returns in your estimation? Yeah, I mean, I think you make a really good point there. Uh, I think one of the cornerstones of why people wanted decriminalization for so long, um, especially the drug users who kept it on the political agenda, was to remove police from um, matters related to substance use and drug use and and an understanding that it's actually a health and social justice issue. Um, And instead of that, we're actually seeing the police have an expanded role and a new role in the lives of drug users, as well as support from ministries that they had not previously received, including the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions. One of the things that I, in reading this um, document that came across, was the fact that police do not send samples of these drugs 
to Health Canada. For example, um, to me, they take the drugs, but we don't know what the concoction is. And the fact that the police don't send the samples to Health Canada, it's kind of a big deal, is it not? Yeah, exactly right. And right now, the street supply is just a mix of random ingredients. And sometimes it's a mix of um, substances that are exempt and ones that are not. And the guidance in the police training that you refer to says to just ask the person. And so it kind of shows how the policy can be set up to be abused or misused anyway. And on top of not sending in samples to Health Canada to really find out what kind of drugs they're confiscating, they're not using scales. Um, They're not measuring this 2.5 grams out. They're doing it by eyesight. So really between those two things, not knowing what the substance is, asking people what they are, and then kind of making a guess on, I mean, I am a downtown Eastside social worker. I look at drugs a lot. 2.5 grams is hard to make out. And so it just shows how wide the discretion for police is in this um, policy framework, and it's ripe for abuse. So one of the things that, you know, the provincial decrum pilot comes out and then the municipalities wanted to get some new bylaws in place. But, you know, everything has been rightly decreed is working against the goals of decriminalization. Is it too vague to actually implement? Like, I just feel like right now it was put in place to try and quell the public because all of a sudden they wanted to do something. Something had to be done. So they said, okay, well, we'll let's decriminalize it. But by doing that, it opens up a whole different set of, you know, conversations. And really, I feel like there's no plan in place. And right now we're like leaving the, the police hanging and that stigma still hanging around the drug user. Yeah, I think you make a great point. I mean, when we look at how decriminalization has rolled out, there have been a couple benefits, which I'll get to, but it's largely been a public relations campaign. It's a policy framework that has so many exceptions and holes, and like you said, is difficult to imagine how it would be implemented. I mean, the unfortunate part is is that the threshold, like the amount that someone can have that is decriminalized, is 2.5 grams, which is really just a random number. Um, consultation and scientific research show between 18 grams and 28 grams being thresholds that would be effective policies. Instead, we're seeing 2.5 grams, which isn't a normal amount to buy. It's a bit closer to what the police were asking for, which is one gram, um, but it's not an effective amount. It's all of these exceptions in the policy, including like the training really emphasizes the, all the other policies police have to displace people who are using drugs. And so the decriminalization model has not been scaled up. Like I really struggle to even call it decriminalization. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like the police actually have a wider scope. We call it like mission creep into healthcare. And so is it decriminalization? They're calling it that doesn't really seem like it. And in the end, it's not really about drug users. Like you say, it's about the BCNDP's numbers in the polls. Tyson, I thought your article in the Georgia Strait was fantastic. I know that you were a co-writer for this, but when I look back at this article, the one thing that really strikes me is that there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of rhetoric, there's a few things that are in place, but it's just so gray that, you know, you mentioned the polls, I think you're spot on, but from the police officers and their training perspective, I mean, yes, they want to do well on the streets and yes, they want to be safe and take these drugs off the streets. But I I just feel like this is nowhere near enough. And if anything, this is, 
it, it's almost missed the point. Yeah, exactly. And I think one thing to be mindful of is that, again, like decriminalization should mean less police involvement in substance use, not more. And now all of this confusion, um, all of this new role, like the police giving out healthcare referrals on a card is actually involving the police more. What we would like to see, I think, at least what I think it would be like a fundamental part of decriminalization would be removing police from issues related to drug use. And um, between 2017 and 2020, we don't have more recent, or at least I don't have more recent data than that. The police confiscated thousands of people's um, very minor amounts of drugs. And what that leads to, and I've written a different paper on this, is people having to buy again because it doesn't get rid of dope sickness. It just gets rid of people's current supply. And people will generally go to a source that's closer, maybe less predictable, and it increases the risk of overdose. And so this decriminalization framework has not been about drug users. It hasn't really been about reducing deaths. It's been about um, placating the police who... And we make this point in the paper, you know, like every year the police go and ask for a budget increase. And a lot of that budget is tied to the way that they manage substance use and drug users. And so what we would what would be preferable in a decriminalization framework is less police, um, fewer drug seizures. And what we ultimately need is a community based um, regulated supply of drugs um, so that people are not dying anymore. It's a great article. I think you fleshed it out fantastically. And I think here on the radio today, you laid out uh, a lot of good points really well. Tyson, thank you for your time this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Rob. Have a good one. Final hour of the Jill Bennett Show. I'm Rob Faye filling in. I will be here through Friday. I hope wherever you are, I find you well. Jazz Joe Hall within the hour going to come in. We'll be... uh, Cross and pass with him at about 2.50, and then he will take the wheel and get you home uh, with three hours of entertaining radio, as they say right here on CKNW. Well, British Columbians have discussed reconciliation with Indigenous peoples more profoundly and for longer than residents of other Canadian regions. This according to a new poll that came out in businessinvancouver.com. And, of course, uh, poll guru Mario Canseco, who's kind enough to join us here today. Mario, good afternoon. That's an honor. Great to be here with you. It is always a pleasure to have you on. And anytime I see a research co-poll, I know we're going to delve into some numbers. So let's get into this because this had to do, uh, a lot to do um, with our Indigenous government and some of the numbers that you put forward were really intriguing. Which one caught you uh, maybe by surprise the most? You know, I think the biggest thing when I look at the survey findings is the difference uh, that we, in the way we feel about reconciliation versus economic reconciliation. 65% of BC residents saying, yes, I have a positive opinion of reconciliation. Let's establish and maintain a mutually respectful relationships uh, between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. Now, when you add the concept of the economy, should we have a specific process in place to make economic amends for historical injustices? it drops to 50%. So it's almost like we're sending mixed signals here. We're all about reconciliation, but when it comes to actually putting money behind it, 15% of BC residents look the other way. Well, it feels almost like we're happy with the Indigenous community and working with them as partners today, but we're not willing to look back historically at some of our uh, challenges that we faced as a country years ago. Would that be fair? That is fair. And one of the things that we've noticed over the past few years is uh, the way in which uh, Canadians and B.C. residents over 55 
haven't really been uh, paying a lot of attention to what is happening related to indigenous peoples. They're more likely to say that they didn't learn about residential schools when they were students. And what we have is a generational shift that is quite intriguing. The 18 to 34 demographic, more likely to support both concepts, reconciliation and economic reconciliation. And what we see with the over 55 says it's okay to reconcile. It's okay to do territory acknowledgement. It's okay to talk about specific issues, but don't ask me to put any money behind it. I want to read uh, a paragraph from what was posted in Business in Vancouver and then get your thoughts on this. It says, more than half of British Columbians hold positive views of self-determination or the right of Indigenous people to determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social and cultural development and to dispose of and benefit from their wealth and natural resources. 55% in my estimation is basically one out of two. What do you take from that? I think part of what we have here is a discrepancy related to the way in which this works. I think there's been a lot of discussion about whether this actually allows specific First Nations to do more than they're supposed to do. We've seen a lot of uh, animosity, uh, particularly on social media, when it comes to certain decisions that the First Nations themselves are taking. We went through all of the process related to LNG development. We're going through it in Vancouver with Sanaku. And and part of what I see here is the notion that more than half are saying, well, this is correct. You know, this is their land and they should be able to do whatever they want with it, whether it's housing, whether it's natural resources. It's something that is essentially ingrained in our laws. And But you still have that group, particularly over 55s, who aren't that convinced about this. You know, they don't want to see a situation where the First Nations are coming to the table as equals with the provincial government or other municipal governments. In October, uh, reading this report, Australian voters participated in a referendum on the creation of an advocacy committee to advise Parliament on policies that infected their Indigenous people. And then when the votes came out, it was actually rejected by 60% of the voters in British Columbia, how different do you think that vote would go? Well, we right now we have a situation where 54% of British Columbians like the Australian idea. Let's establish an advocacy committee that would advise either the Federal House of Commons or the Legislative Assembly here in BC to deal with issues that affect Indigenous peoples. Now, what's fascinating about the case in Australia is when this was first presented, the level of support was closer to 60%. Once the campaign began, once specific political parties, specific people decided to get behind the no side, that's when everything changed. So part of what we had in Australia was the effect of the campaign. People liked the idea at first. When they learned more about it and they saw politicians essentially taking sides, that's when the yes vote started to essentially drop. And, and this is why the referendum wasn't successful. Uh, Mario Canseco is the president of Research Co. Let's flip the coin on this one for a second and take the numbers out of this. What do you think the indigenous community would say about these numbers? Well, I think that there might be a sense of satisfaction, particularly because of everything we've been through. When you have a majority of BC residents saying they uh, have the right to choose whatever they want to do when it comes to natural resources, and almost two out of three saying uh, when it comes to housing, of course, if you want to build in your land, please do it. Uh, it's complex because there's so many discussions related to the overlapping claims. We've been discussing how to deal with economic reconciliation for quite a long time. 
And I think part of what we see from the public is a confusion between the terms. Everybody wants to be happy when they say something, but when it comes to, putting, to, to essentially putting money behind it, that is when it gets a little bit lost. And, and you know, I think part of the reaction would be this should be 100% or this should be 0%, but this is ultimately what we're measuring. There are certain things where people are welcoming to reconciliation. And there are others where there's plenty of confusion to go around. And Mario, final question for you. I don't know if you touched on it. I feel like you did, and I, I just am trying to process the numbers here. From a demographic age-wise, do you find that the older people skew against it, whereas the younger generation skews towards it? They do skew against it. And I think part of what we have here is the numbers don't really fluctuate that much from economic reconciliation and reconciliation with younger people. If you're 18 to 34, you like the two concepts. If you're 55 and over, you're more likely to say reconciliation is fine. We'll say what we need to say. Uh, but when it comes to putting money behind it, we're not that certain. And I think that that is the big generation gap uh, that is going to be crucial for the decisions of the next 20, 30 years. Will the young people of today grow up to be the 55 and overs in 20, 30 years and have a different view than those who are 55 now? I got a sneaking suspicion they will. Mario, thank you for all the research and uh, look forward to having you on again. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.